We've been around the block as a podcast coming to you from the heart of the KZN Midlands. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Anthony Jarvi, and today's very special guest is Dr. Deirdre Furi. Welcome, Deirdre. Thanks, Anthony. Nice to be on your podcast. Deirdre, you're a bacteriologist, having worked many years at the um, Grain Crops Research Institute at Potchestrom. Tell me, how did you get involved in the Institute and how did you get there? Anthony, it's actually a strange story. Yeah. I studied microbiology and human physiology. Oh. And uh, yes, there was an opening at the Grain Crops Institute. And my professor at the university, because at that stage I was working at the university, but just a part time. Which university was uh, that? Northwest. Right. Okay. And um, yes, I was uh, lecturing there part time. And then my professor said he knew about this opening at the Grain Crops Institute. That right. time it was still the Department of Agriculture. Okay, right. So, so maybe while we're just on that, maybe it would be good just to explain where the Grain Crops Institute fits in. So the Grain Crops Institute is, is one of the institutes within the ARC. Yes. Um, and the ARC is within the Government Department of Agriculture. Is that correct? Yes. I started in 1991 when it was still the Department of Agriculture. And then in 1992, the ARC was established. Okay. So it's sort of a parastatal. So they still get salary or funded from the department, but all the others are funding is from outside organisations. Okay. So it's not fully fully funded by the department or the government. Government. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I, I interrupted you there, but it was just to place context of of where the Grain Crops Research Institute actually fit in. So you were saying you got the position? Yes, then I went for an interview and then I didn't have any agricultural background, okay. which is strange, but they were looking for a bacteriologist. And with my microbiology background, yeah, I got the position as bacteriologist at the Grain Crops Institute. Right, and, and you did your PhD afterwards or... At the same? No, afterwards. I was busy with my master's degree when I started at Grain Crops. And then I did my PhD also in microbiology. But because they've, they've got a plant pathology at the University of Pretoria, it was microbiology and plant pathology. Okay. So I did my PhD in 2003. Right. Yeah, so okay. I've, I, I was there for about 10 years before I did my PhD. Wow, wonderful. Deirdre, so the Grain Crops Research Institute hosts the National Dry Bean Program. You'd worked in the national program for, for how many years? 30 years. For 30 years, wow, well, for 30 years. years, yeah. So you worked in the national program for 30 years and, and you've recently retired. I thought it would be a, a good opportunity at this stage to have a look at the development of the bean program over the last 40 years or so. You know, I think it's a great time to look at the program, to celebrate all the triumphs, to look at the milestones and to perhaps delve a little into the characters that have been part of this 40-year history. So right after the break, we will have a look at four decades of history in the dry bean program. This episode is sponsored by Panaseed. In years gone by when you went to the bank, you were familiar with all the tellers and you greeted the bank manager by name. Because if you had a problem, you would go straight to her. 
Nowadays, the decision-making has been centralized, so you no longer have that personal contact. You land up being channeled through a call center, and every time you phone, you get somebody else, and you have to start that explanation all over again. It is very frustrating and enough to make me consider changing banks, but the problem is that all the banks do this, and it has become the norm with almost all large institutions, regardless of their business. But with Pana, it's different. They have a network of representatives that call on their customers, so you always have a personal contact. And each of these reps is backed by a regional sales team and a regional agronomist. So even if your query is cascaded upwards, it'll be within a team that understands your business. So this is really a call out to big business. You need to be better. Be like Pana. Right, back to the back to the show. Dead rape. So we mentioned that we'd look at 40 years of history. And what I've done is I've broken that 40 years up into, into different eras. And I thought what we should do is start with the Willem Vermeulen era, which uh, I'm not sure when it started, but if we go back 40 years, that would have been early 80s, right? And to me, one of the big milestones that happened in this era was the development of the disease-free seed certification scheme. Now, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't only coming from the um, national program at that stage, but um, I did read some very old hand-typed documents that, that showed that quite a lot of the research had been done by the bean program. Which pathogens would they add into the disease-free scheme? And also then having a look at which areas would they use to develop the disease-free seed multiplication. So which are the, the diseases that are currently in, in the disease-free scheme? Okay, Anthony, yes. The first initiative for the disease-free scheme came from the plant protection when it was still in Rittendale. So okay. they played yeah. the lead role. And the specific diseases are the bacterial diseases, uh, common bacterial blight, hollow blight, bacterial brown spot, the fungal diseases are um, anthracnose and scab, and then uh, is scab actually scab is actually one one that's of them. In the, okay, yeah. right. And then the viral is the in common mosaic virus. Right. So th- those are the, f- the six diseases that are right. And then uh, sclerotinia is there, but it's not in the seed. It, uh, yeah, it's just the, the sclerotia yeah. in yeah. the seed yeah. that's that's added right. that. And then Potch was also involved with the Meristem, developing Meristem the Meristem culture. culture for the beginning of the disease free and that was adopted by the DPO and they still they still do the, do the Meristem. Um, the seed production areas it initially it started in Cirrus, if I understand okay. it correctly. Oh, Is that uh, the Cobalt felt? Yeah, I think so. And they did that when they started the disease free seed scheme. They did it in conjunction with Sapu, the f- uh, soft fruit. And then at that stage, there was a lot of painted ladies, the muscom type, that was planted in Lutzville area. So they decided to take the disease-free scheme to, scheme to, Lutzville. to, to Lutzville, yes. Right. And then they did it there on the ARC. ARC farm. The farm there, yes. Yeah. And now they contract farmers to okay. do the... Right. So, you know, in terms of this uh, disease-free scheme, this area that we have in the Western Cape, is probably the closest we're going to get to the sort of situation that they have in Idaho. In Idaho, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that they had with the disease-free scheme is that you should be doing the seed multiplication in in the summer rainfall areas 
during the winter and in the winter rainfall areas during the summer. summer. And so this would be the winter rainfall era and they would be doing it down on the west coast. And then on top of that, they would also had they also found areas in the low fault, which used to be the Eastern Transvaal low fault, where it was frost free in the winter and so essentially a summer rainfall area which they then did seed production. Yeah. Yes. From there they do the basic seed and the, the breeder seed down in Lutzville. And then seed from that goes to, to the farmers where they contract them in Limpopo. Right. So those areas that they had already found back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, we are still using those areas and we're still using the same protocols and we're still using this, we're still looking at the same diseases. So really this That's was quite a, yeah, mm. this was quite a, a, a landmark decision to, to start the disease-free scheme because I think if you look at the bean production in the rest of Africa, the thing that, that South Africa differs from the rest is that we have a disease-free certified scheme. scheme. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. It is. In previous time, we lost some areas, yeah. especially to the sugarcane back then, and now the citrus is also a, you know, in the Limpopo area. Yeah. The farmers are losing areas to the citrus, which yeah. might pose a problem in the future. Yeah. To date, we still use the same well, areas. if it's a competition, we are getting some of that area back from the sugar cane because because the poor sugar farmers are in trouble at the moment. Right, and so that was probably the one thing that I can remember and and we're stretching the limits of my memory going back onto quite the fringe areas with the Willem Vermeulen era. The next era I would call the Liebenberg era and that's when Andres took over the program and really this has been quite the golden era in bean development. There were a couple of very important decisions made early in that in the Liebenberg era and and the first one that I can think of is having the industry move over to the iGene protection for being common mosaic virus. Yes. Initially Andres was the agronomist yeah. at the IRC and then Willem Vermeulen was the breeder. So he started the breeding program in nineteen seventies, focusing on the small whites. Because the yellow yeah. and the and they were extremely susceptible to being common mosaic virus. Correct. And the weight control, it's using the eye gene. But in Africa, it's, there's a lot of races, the necrotic races, which could pose a problem if you use the eye gene, that um, it will take out the crop. Right. But they started off with improving the disease resistance and started off with being common mosaic virus and incorporating the eye gene. Right, and it was a very brave decision, right? Yes. Because for the period when you have a mixture of susceptibles and hygiene material, you have the risk, because it's hypersensitive resistance, mm. yes. you have the risk of... It's destructive, um, yeah. Yeah, very destructive. And so it was a brave decision to move over to the hygiene, but we're now 30 years down the road. And, and it's still holding And yeah. it's still holding out, and it's been a very, very good, a very good decision made by the bean industry at that stage. Yes, because BCMV is almost, you know, non-existing anymore. That's correct. And yeah. all our cultivars yeah. got it, uh, except for, I think, Oris 5. Yeah. There's one cultivar that... Yeah, so that it's, a bit, like, have, it's a bit it's like herd immunity. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this COVID has made um, epidemiologists out of all of yeah. us. So the, the thing about the fact that if you've removed all the inoculum, then, then essentially it's possible to have susceptible varieties in amongst the lot because there's just no new inoculum coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that was perhaps the first development within the Liebenberg era. The next was actually the move towards 
improving seed size and rust resistance. And then actually started building up the dream team, as yeah. what I would say. And we had Brian Eddington, who eventually had a PhD in genetics, and uh, Mary Liebenberg, who had a PhD in mycology. She was really a rust person. Right? Yes, and, and you, an and, angular leaf spot, yeah. Yes, and yourself on bacteria. And if I just think of that team, that is an incredible amount of resources and expertise in a single very small crop. Yes. As I say, with Brian Eddington way back, he started, because initially it was only on the small whites, and then when Brian Eddington came there, they started working on the, to improve the sugar beans. And at that stage, it was bonus, and it was very susceptible to rust, angular leaf spot, BCMB. So right. he made crosses and then incorporated the I gene. So it had resistance, but it was still susceptible to rust and angular leaf spot. Yeah. And then he made the crosses, he registered Crownscorp. Mm-hmm. With rust good resistance, rust resistance yes. yes, and yeah. then Kronskop was used as a, as a resistant a source uh, because it, the cultivars were still susceptible to the other fungal diseases and the bacterial diseases, and they made the decision to get a bacteriologist and a mycologist. Yeah, with our appointments, we could study the whole pathogen. You know, we did the the race identification, studied the pathogen, and then each of us had our own breeding program. program. If you think of the small whites. We could breed in the resistance, but the, the quality went lost, yeah. you know. So that's why we both had our own backcross program. So yeah. we did backcrossing to get back the original cultivars. Yes. And, so and we each had our uh, breeding program, and then we fed it into the main breeding well, program, which well, Andres this, had. This is what makes the program so strong, in that you have these areas of specialization feeding in, into the breeding program. And we, we mustn't forget, we, we also had the canning, the quality lab, yeah. you know, with, with experienced people doing the canning so you, you can do your selection according to the canning quality. And we also had the two very good biotechnologists that assisted in the breeding or on the resistance breeding. So the, it was really a unique, strong team that very, we had very, yeah. for many years. <laughs> yeah, definitely the, the dream team. And actually, if I just look at things today, we may never be able to replicate that no, again. No, yeah. 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 Right, so during this time and between the the, the a bunch of you, you managed to release some very nice varieties. We there, there were several cultivars for from my program with the bacterial disease resistance. There was Kronskop HR1 with hyaluronic resistance, um, Verna on RE7 with common blood resistance, and then from the fungal, we all know Siederberg, Tebes RR1, Teicherberg, and Kamisberg. So that really fed into the, the next era and after the retirement of both Andres and Mary Liebenberg, you took over the program in roughly 2010, would I say? Yeah, around 2010. 2010, yeah. right. Andres so retired in 2009, but he still continued for a year or two. Yeah. And then I started working with him and taking over the program, yes. Right, right. But at so that stage, it was the good resistances was in the correct background so it was yeah. easy just to follow up on that. Right. To, yeah. So, so this is what I would call the Faree era. <laughs> and everybody knows Faree is a jolly good fellow. And it's not just my opinion. <laughs> so say all of us. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so for me, just looking at the period that you spent leading the program, one of the things that strikes me is the fact that you took over the program and actually managed to keep the momentum that was generated during the era before you, you know you used this momentum 
from the Liebenberg era and you just carried it through almost on your own. I know you had a, a very good team working with you, but you were the only scientist on the program. And you managed to continue with this momentum and actually develop and release varieties on top of that. So very well done. I know that you retired at the end of June this year and I think it's going to be very difficult to fill your I won't say big shoes, small shoes. <laughs> Ladies have small feet, but it's it's going to be very difficult to fill your position, basically because there are not a lot of bean breeders out there. I mean, if you look at in South Africa, you could possibly put all the bean breeders in a Mini Cooper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be you and Andres in the front and Rob Mellis and myself in the back <laughs> and still some spare space. <laughs> so you can't just pull a bean breeder off the shelf. How do you think the ARC are going to deal with this? That's a hard question to answer. At this stage, um, there's, still, there's a lot of good material there. So the ball is in their court just to try and keep it going. I will to still keep be, the momentum going, to, right? Yes, mm. I will still support them for the next season or so just to help them keep the momentum. That's been the success of, of the bean breeding program. Uh, Andres had 35 years in the bean program. I had 30, Mary 19. And we also had a technician that was there for 23 years before she passed away. So it's really the commitment from people to stay in the program. And then the commitment is there from the from the DPO side to fund the program. Because obviously you also need yeah. funding. Yeah. So it's going to be challenging, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you know, so I'm, I'm just looking and I'm hoping that there are some listeners from the Institute or from the ARC listening here, that they would look at, at how the program is funded because I have this theory on which is called the Marmite and Cheese Theory, right? And so it works for funding. You can use it like Marmite. You take the available funding and you spread it very thinly over, over everything, right? Or you can take the available funding and you can channel it into a nice big chunk so that would be like the cheese you cut a big chunk of cheese off and you put it on a single biscuit and you eat it and so i'm just thinking that that there are many programs within the the institute that actually don't have much of an impact you know so if you just think of programs that would compete with the private uh, sector so maize sunflower yeah soybeans there's very little chance of having any impact in soybeans or sunflower or maize, in fact. And if they use those resources and channel them into a, a program like the Beans, which could have a big impact, you know, perhaps that's the way of looking at it and saying, well, we won't replace Deirdre with one person. We'll replace Deirdre with two people yes. or three people. If you, if you don't do anything, if a program stagnates for two years, then it's, it's gone. gone. It's absolutely gone. So, and, yeah. and the other thing is that, that if you're looking at outside support, Mm. As soon as the industry realizes that the program is stagnating, they will withdraw support. And so it's very important to actually get going right away. And whilst there is still a momentum in the program, to actually utilize that and get the support of the industry. Because I think the industry will support as long as we can see that there's an effort being made to continue the momentum. Yes, and that's my hope for the ARC and the program, that it will really continue because there's, there's a lot of people's legacy that's that's it's, there that right. we would like to see being continued absolutely right so Deirdre perhaps just then moving on to cultivar development I thought that it might be a very good idea uh, and it might have some listener appeal just to tell us about a, a plant breeding story that you have 
and if you like, I can give you an example of, of a plant breeding story. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, so I, I just think that, you know, going back to when I started, I must have been in the program, in, in the private program for about eight years. And I got cornered in a car park by one of the directors at one stage and he said, so, so um, do you have a blockbuster variety for us uh, this year? And I'm not sure what my response was, but it was probably, no, there's no blockbusters. And he turned around to me and said, well, I don't know why we're paying your salary for, for eight years if you can't develop these things. And I just went back home. I, I was absolutely shattered. My ego was, was absolutely broken. <laughs> and the next day I went out in the field and I walked all our most advanced trials and I just looked through everything and there was just no blockbusters there. And I, I then just decided, well, I'll, I'll just go one one generation back and I went into our intermediate phase testing things and I walked everything and I couldn't see anything and I, I then went in initials and there was nothing, nothing in the testing phase that, that would really start a fire. And so I then just decided, well, I'll go straight into the breeding program and I started walking the breeding plots. And eventually I came across a, a family which just stood out. You know, it was a family of perhaps 30, 40 siblings which just stood out and, and I spent a little bit of time walking through this lot and I just decided on one of them and bought the seed of that and put it in for cultivar registration. And this is really actually putting all your eggs in one basket because normally we do it the other way around. So you would only do cultivar registration after having tested the variety mm. for many years. And so I went straight into cultivar registration. I put the variety straight into the glasshouse to start disease-free seed multiplication, um, sent it to the winter nursery to get uh, seed bulked up for trials. And by the time we had commercial amounts of seed available, it had been properly tested and it was good to go. And really, it cut many, many years out of, out of the cycle. And so at that stage, the director was very happy because he had his blockbuster variety. Oh, and I was very relieved because I still had a job. And the farmers were happy because this variety was called Pan 148. Oh, and it's still, <laughs> <laughs> and it's still in the market still, uh, 25 yeah. years wow. later, uh, mm. you know. And so that was quite a quite a story of of bruised egos and putting your eggs in one basket, which I probably would never repeat again. But you know, it is a story which which is different to many of the normal plant breeding stories. Yeah, I can't say that I've got a like a success story of like that. But if I think back on trying to improve the common bacterial blight resistance which was extremely hard work because everything was susceptible. You would make the crosses and I would inoculate every single plant in a plot in the field. And then... It was by hand, right? By hand. <laughs> and then afterwards going there and making single plants, you know, um, marking every plant that's got res the resistance and selecting those. And every year you see all the more plants are getting... So it was, it was also the people thought that I was crazy doing it that way around. So it, you did it in the segregating generations early. In the early, segregating early, early and yeah. so it was a lot of work. Mm. It was really, but it paid off and, and the, the, the satisfaction when you see the resistance, although it also had their problems because all the resistant plants that were extremely resistant had a purple speckle and not a red speckle. <laughs> so to, <laughs> to get rid of that. But in the end, to get a variety that got good, and it's been tested also in, in other African countries and everybody refers to it as highly resistant and that's the RE7 environment. So, yeah, that, that I can say was, was something 
to yeah. me, it was nice every year to see. Well, being a bacteriologist the, yeah. and <laughs> combining it with plant breeding is... And then also yeah. to see it at the end, because I've just concentrated on the resistance. I didn't, you know, specifically look at if it's agronomically, you know, or... Suitable, that, or that's whether suitable the seat type is right, whether... Or seat type and yeah. to, to get something out there. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. that was... That's amazing, yeah. yeah. And okay. then at the end of the day when Marcus became... Because I know a lot of people rely on the markers because there's good markers for the resistance. And they would go to, to the markers and I did it the other way around. And then at the end of the day, we tested the markers and it were, all of the markers were in all the material, which um, was quite... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, so, so I did it the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> well, so you, you, you need to develop that technique to be able to develop those markers. Yes, and so, yes. Yeah, and so perhaps if you had those... Um, Earlier, if you had that uh, available to you, because mm. nowadays that's the way breeders would do it, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would. But you still lose some minor genes that you don't pick up. Mm-hmm. I still believe phenotyping is still important. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Good. Right. Deirdre, it's been wonderful chatting to you about the last four decades of plant breeding history incorporated in the Grain Crops Research Institute and the National Dry Bean Program. And I wish you all the strength in your in your retirement. <laughs> and as as you know, bean breeders don't ever retire. Yes. So yeah, it's been wonderful chatting to you. And until next time, it's been a guest. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye.